Hi, I'm Carl Danzig from the Rand Eye Institute in Deerfield Beach, Florida, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington. Hi, John. Hey, Carl. Good to see you. Same here. I'm excited to talk about some interesting DME cases. Here are our disclosures. So what we're talking about tonight are DME treatment strategies with longer duration therapies. And I want to start off by introducing a patient who's treatment naive with PDR and DME. He's a young man, 48 years old, who complained of some blurry vision for a few weeks. His A1C currently is 5.6, but in the not too distant past, it was 11. No history of laser injections and no history of any surgeries. Vision actually was pretty good, 20, 30 in each eye with normal pressure, no NVI, clear lens. But what we see in the right eye is NV, Doppler hemorrhages, vitreous hemorrhage, and DME. The left eye, there was no NVE, but there were some Doppler hemorrhage and cotton wool spots with moderate NPDR. And here's a picture of the right eye that shows the pre-retinal hemorrhage, temporal scar to the macula, and multiple cotton wool spots. We see the vitreous macular adhesion with DME and a little subretinal fluid on OCT. So this is a patient that I was very worried about knowing that his A1C was 11. We did a fluorescein angiogram. John, do you always do fluorescenes when you see a patient like this? You know, Carl, I don't, but seeing this makes me wish I, I did more, actually. You know, we're, we're very busy in our satellite clinics, and, uh, and so I've just kind of stopped doing angiograms in, in lieu of ultra-wide field imaging, but you show very beautifully that a patient here has much more neovascularization and proliferative disease than actually uh, what we would have seen or thought of on the, uh, on the images. Carl, I got to ask you, what role does the proliferative disease play in your decision-making for a patient who has good vision like this gentleman? Well, this is a patient who has a lot to lose. So he had good vision, but we know that with a history of double-digit A1C, he, he's hanging on by a thread here. This can go either way for this young man. He's a working individual, and he needs his vision to function for the city of Fort Lauderdale for which he works. So here's a patient who I wanted to give him uh, one of, at the time, the newest therapy available. And uh, what we did, we chose to give him furisumab, uh, a bispecific uh, who uh, FDA approved after the uh, Yosemite and Ryan trials. And we gave him one on his uh, uh, furisumab number one in January and brought him back a month later. And what we see here is a reduction in CST, still with some of that pre-retinal hemorrhage that we can see it on the image next to the OCT, but we see his DME is reducing. Bring him back again after a second for Asimab. Look at that fovea. The DME is pretty much resolved. That pre-retinal hemorrhage that you can see on the infrared image, definitely reduced. And the CST is 331. This patient's already very happy. He actually had missed his follow-up. So this was actually about seven weeks after his first Asimab number two. Lo and behold, um, we kept injecting. He actually came back. Vision improved to 2020. He had his fourth dose in July. He had his fifth dose and came back at a four-month interval in December 2023. Got his seventh furisumab vision 2020, CST 299, and the macula looks pristine. The hemorrhages that you see on infrared or, or uh, photos here are 
improved dramatically. And this is a happy patient who went 16 weeks between injections, treatment naive, treated with fericimab, and had a beautiful result. Wow, Carl, that 16 weeks is absolutely amazing. I mean, to think that we now have agents that can, in the first year, get these patients out to 16 weeks. Do you ever worry about follow-up in a patient like that and loss to follow-up and consider putting in PRP at this point? So that's an excellent question. I've actually discussed uh, this patient with a bunch of my colleagues, and that always comes up. So for this patient, and, and some of these cases are so individualized, and you see this all the time, you know, diabetes is so devastating for so many people. But here's a gentleman who came in that demonstrated a commitment to improving his life. His A1C went from 11 to 5.6. PRP uh, is no fun for any patient. It hurts. Uh, it requires multiple sessions. Yes, it is a fantastic treatment. Um, and it is permanent. But here's a patient that I, I trusted. And he followed through. Yes, I know the data. If people get lost to follow-up for a year, you know, this could this could turn really badly for that patient. But in the patient who keeps his appointments and shows good glucose control, I'm willing to give him a chance to avoid laser. And what you would know, you do? You yeah, I agree with you, Carl. I, I really have gone away from PRP as well uh, in the in the patients that have committed follow-up. And I think you're really good point by saying, hey, he's shown a commitment to improving his A1C. You know, if a patient comes in and they're non-compliant with their blood sugar control, they're going to be non-compliant at some point with their follow-up. Uh, and so those are that's a great pearl for the person to think about doing PRP is this patient, except they come in and their A1C is 11, and they show no effort to try and get it down because eventually they're going to get as tired of us treating them and injecting them as they are of giving themselves their own injections with insulin and whatnot. I also think it's amazing, Carl, that you chose such a new therapy, and now this patient is out and getting three injections a year. That has to improve compliance in someone like this that actually can come in three times a year and, and re retain that excellent vision. Completely agree. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of, of what these newer medications can do for patients when they are a partner with the physician in improving their condition. And not to the part with the physician, here's a working class individual that comes to his appointments every single time with his wife. Mm -hmm. He has a job too. She also takes off from her job to support her husband. It's a, it's a, it's a marriage, it's a partnership. And I see the commitment because when treating someone with diabetes, it really takes everybody in the family to buy in to helping this one individual control their life and improve it. I think that's another great pearl. You know, a person that comes in that really worries me for failing to follow up is the single younger male that has no one else with him and an uncontrolled A1C and proliferative retinopathy. I'm more likely to laser that patient and it's anecdotal alone because they don't have that caregiver there that's hearing what we're telling them, which is usually, hey, listen, you're going to probably do just fine. We're going to make your vision better. We're going to keep you from going blind, which we couldn't have said 20 years ago but you have to come back. And when the caregiver hears that, the caregiver can commit to making sure that that patient gets back. So I think that's a really interesting thought. Right. And it's it, the caregiver is, it's interesting because where I live in South Florida, you know, we have a lot of patients with their caregivers because they're retired and they're elderly. 
Um, and diabetes doesn't always affect just the people who are working in, in, in South Florida. We see it a lot. And I know you do it in, in Kentucky, these patients who are retired, but they're still suffering. Um, unfortunately, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but some of the older patients skew towards the uh, neovascular AMD category, but we still see a lot of DME patients uh, of all ages. Now, Carl, how'd this patient's fellow I do? Uh, we've observed them. Wow, that's great. And did you see some regression in the retinopathy? I mean, I'd be interested to know if his level of retinopathy is actually more moderate now. We didn't see any follow-up ultra-wide fields uh, images, but how's he looking from that standpoint? You know, I saw him recently, uh, just a, about six weeks ago. We did not repeat the uh, fluorescein at that time. Uh, we probably will at the next visit, but his retinopathy has been mostly stable, maybe a tiny bit improved. Remember, his A1C is also 5.6. So we know in some of those patients, when they have that degree of improvement, eventually uh, the retinopathy can improve also, but it's mostly stable. That's a beautiful case. That's a, that's a real win. Thank you. I think so too. I'm very happy for the patient. Well, Carl, that was an awesome case. Now I'm going to really challenge you with this one. Uh, this is a diabetic patient that I've seen for, for a while here. And, uh, and I just really appreciate any advice on how to better manage this patient. Uh, and, and it's going to give some initial impressions of a flibercept eight milligrams for DME. I also used ferisimab in this patient. Um, and I wouldn't judge how this patient did, I wouldn't judge a flibercept eight milligrams or ferisimab by how this patient did, because this is a really unusual one. Um, I first started seeing this gentleman in June of 2018. At the time he was 65. Um, he was sent for an evaluation of diabetic macular edema. Like your case, his A1C previously had been worse, not 11, but was eight. And now it was five. His vision was good. Um, and his A1C well-controlled pseudophagic and not a lot of diabetic retinopathy. And this is usually the image that I'll evaluate first when I'm seeing a diabetic patient so I can just grade their retinopathy. Sometimes I'll adjust it to the red freeze so I can tell if there's any NV, but I don't get a fluorescein as much, but I do get an OCT on every new patient. And we can see here that this patient had diabetic macular edema, but it was really kind of that juxtafovial DME. And with uh, good visual acuity, I also did, by the way, get an OCTA. Uh, and uh, the OCTA showed that it was diabetic related and not some weird vein occlusion or something else uh, going on. So I'll just kind of show you how he went over time. Because he was uh, symptomatic, we went ahead and gave him uh, a flibercept injections times three. Um, when the left eye really was still leaking after those first three injections, we flipped him over to an uh, intravitreal dexamethasone, extended dexamethasone implant. And uh, that seemed to dry things up pretty good. So we said, hey, let's try that in the right eye. No steroid response. And, uh, and he got a, a better, better overall. So we then decided to observe him. Um, and then when he started to get a little recurrence in his left eye, and this is back in 2018, 2019, treated him with another dexamethasone implant in the left eye, right eye as dexamethasone. The first one wore off. We gave him another one in that right eye. And uh, this time we didn't quite see the same robust response in the right eye. I'm going to fast forward here again. So here's this patient comes in and he still has that edema in his right eye. We give him another dexamethasone implant. 
in the right eye, it gets modestly better. We go ahead and intervene in his left eye. And you can see it's just this kind of never quite getting all the way better. It's very, it's not very satisfying actually to, to see this patient because we're not really just snapping him dry. And so eventually we actually decide that we're going to go back and start using uh, a flibercept again, because it just felt like that we couldn't keep going with this uh, intravitreal steroid. We'd given him a, a, actually an intravitreal fluosinolone acetonide implant and hoping to have greater durability. But when he recurs, we, we go back over to the aflibercept and we continue with the aflibercept. And once again, it just seems like he's struggling here, uh, but his vision is still good, you know? And so we've been retreating him basically every six to seven weeks. Uh, vision drops to 2030 and he starts to notice issues. And then in the fall of 2022, we actually were able to uh, switch him over to uh, ferisimab uh, because it was approved and we were able to treat him with ferisimab. Uh, and then once we had a flibercept eight milligrams, we switched him over to that. And I just want to show you what we kind of encountered here. And this is just sort of that left eye kind of highlights this. And it was worse compared to the right eye. But here we can see in 21, he had this small area of juxtafovial edema, good visual acuity. We're hitting him pretty consistently with these aflibercept injections, but it's never drying up completely. Even when I would inject him and bring him back a week or two later, it still would have that persistent leakage. And then in, um, in uh, the fall of 22, we switch him over to ferisimab and we see this area start to get bigger, you know? And so we've given him several ferisimab injections. And, uh, and then I'm like, look, now we have a flibercept eight milligrams. You're the perfect person. I want to put on eight milligrams. And that edema basically gets even larger with the eight milligrams. And so Carl, here we have somebody who's had multiple ferisimab injections in this eye. The edema has continued to enlarge. He's now dropping vision-wise to 2040 and then 2060, and we'd switched him over to a flibercept eight milligrams. Where do I go from here? Right. I mean, I think this is a an excellent case that really illustrates a patient who is committed to getting the best possible treatment, coming into the appointments, receiving the injections, controlling his A1C, and you as, as a physician giving this individual the best possible treatment that we can provide as physicians. And still in spite of all of that, the avalanche that has ensued this, you know, on this patient's macula from his diabetes is, is still so prominent. And I get worried for these patients when I see that intravitreal steroids don't really touch them that much. You know, maybe in the beginning they do, but they stop having that response to a steroid. I, I, I get worried, like this patient had a couple dexamethasone implants and it had diminishing effect. And adding the anti-VEGF commonly helps. Adding a bispecific with ferisimab commonly helps. But here's a patient that uh, we're, we're swimming upstream and not getting any closer to our, our goal. So uh, I would repeat the floor scene in this patient. I would see if there's anything else going on metabolically in this patient. Maybe, you know, check some other labs. Maybe there's something else. We know he doesn't have a vein occlusion, but is, is there anything else in his, you know, that, that, that could be causing this amount of recalcitrant edema? Yeah, those are all great suggestions. You know, I've, I, 
certainly, you know, if it was more diffuse and center involved, I would think about vitrectomy, although I do worry when doing a vitrectomy for diabetic macular edema, obviously without a taut posterior hyaloid or some other tractional element, that we fu fundamentally change some of the pharmacokinetics in the eye and that these medicines may not last as long. Do you believe that? And, and how do you approach that type of patient? Doing vitrectomy in a patient like this is always my last resort. I understand that there are some physicians out there that believe that you know, this is a patient that maybe we should go in sooner and treat with vitrectomy. But I agree with you wholeheartedly that in patients who do not have vitreous, the durability of some of these medications uh, anecdotally is less. I mean, they've never been there's never, never been a clinical trial of uh, a flibrous of eight milligrams in a vitrectomized eye or ferisumab in a vitrectomized eye. But over the years, we've had patients who've had vitrectomy uh, who've needed these medications and commonly they just don't last as long. And those patients commonly do need uh, a steroid injection based on the durability because it's an implant uh, versus a solution. Uh, I'm, I still wouldn't run to do vitrectomy on this patient because you definitely lose uh, the vitreous and you know I think that can help you know, with the durability of the medications that you are injecting. If the patient's really motivated to try everything possible, then I, I would offer it, but let him know that there's no guarantee to really improve his lot. And then last but not least, Carl, you know, it's it's still more, you know, extrafovial or juxtafovial than it is subfovial. Is this a patient to consider, and I haven't done it in years, but consider focal laser treatment, like a grid laser treatment in? I think that if you can at least demonstrate some improvement or response to the flibrocept eight milligrams and then go in maybe a two weeks later, a couple of weeks later, I wouldn't necessarily bring the patient back in four weeks. I actually want to see a response. And this is one thing I would suggest with this patient is, you know, check an OCT two weeks after giving him one of these injections, because you'll at least see if there's a response. If it's still no response, then he's, he might be a complete non-responder. And then we're kind of stuck. That's great suggestion. Awesome. Thank you, Carl. My pleasure. Thank you. Great case.